Welcome to another exciting episode of Broker's Playbook. Today, I'm excited to have a good friend, colleague, and one of the absolute biggest legends in real estate right here with me. It's none other than Hunter Milborn of the Milborn Group. Hunter is going to share what he has seen in his decades of service to the industry and what he has to do today to continue to remain competitive and successful. Stay tuned. Mr. Hunter Milborn, welcome to Broker's Playbook. Thank you, Simeon. It's always a pleasure to uh, sit and chat with you. There's always some stimulating conversation <laughs> and ideas that uh, pop out. I, I mean, if there's any stimuli necessary, right now is the time. We're, we're living literally through uh, by far the most difficult market I've seen in my almost two decades. I'm 17 years in the business, um, and it's by far the toughest market that I've had to experience and work within uh having you here today i'm super excited uh for you to share some of your wisdom uh in your experiences with me and of course the entire brokers playbook nation yes thanks i mean you know we uh started our condo sales business in june of 1976 so it's been a long time a long time so we've been through eight of these up and down interest rate cycles and some of them have been short and not so painful some of them have been long and very painful uh, this one's kind of in the middle. Um, but I think that the one thing that we know is as sure as day follows night and summer follows winter, that, uh, you know, the market, and, and you tend, when you're, when, you're, when you're in a market, you tend to believe that it'll never change, right? If it's great, you think it'll never change. And if it's not great, you think it'll never change. But the one thing that's most certain is that it's going to be change. And, you know, from what I've read, and everyone has their own crystal ball um, in terms of, you know, you have to look at the Fed and Bank of Canada, and part of it is what they do, and part of it is what they say. And the more rhetoric that they come out with is, oh, these rates are going to be much higher for longer. That enables them to make them much lower sooner because of the rhetoric as well as the yeah, because then it's a, it's a positive surprise as opposed to what happened previously in the last couple of years where the Bank of Canada stood up and said, you know, everything's going to remain low forever. And then when they started going up just a year later, they had egg on their face. Yeah. So this is the reverse rhetoric that we're hearing now exactly. where they can try to make up some of that bad PR. Yeah. And, you know, there's, a, there's an evolving consensus out there with a lot of the large uh, Canadian bank top economists that the raising is done. So there was a very interesting article, uh, summer, July of 2022, I can send you a copy of it, uh, in the National Post, Financial Post section, that traced the last six cycles. And it was very specific. Where did rates start? Where did they end up going to? How long did it take? When did the plateau start? When did it last until? How long did it take to drop? Um, the average length of those plateaus was six or seven months, and the average length of the drops from peak to valley when they started to reduce was about 90 days. So what I've read recently with a lot of the Bank of Canada economists, you know, they're seeming to think that whether it's Q1 or Q2 or Q3, you know, we're, if, we're, if, if rates have recently topped out and we're beginning that six to seven month plateau, um, it won't be that long before things drop. So probably, I mean, our, our feeling is by Q2 next year. Uh, so we're a lot closer to the end than we are to the middle or the beginning of this cycle, I think. Well, I mean, back in November 2023, just in the last month, uh, they held the rates. 
They held the rates. So we are seeing that plateau appear. There's one more coming up here end of December uh, that they may do something. I don't believe so. I think uh, the effect that was necessary for them to stop raising rates has been achieved. The country in its entirety is on the ropes. You can't speak to anybody. And I don't care about your financial status, rich, poor, somewhere in the middle. There is nobody that hasn't felt this pinch. Nobody. Because the, the, the person who has the millions has million-dollar problems. The person who has the hundreds has $100,000 problems. The person who has 10 bucks has $10 problems. But there's not a single class of Canadians that I have spoken to, and I speak to investors from every spectrum, that hasn't felt this pinch, that is not absolutely livid with the way things have gone, and is looking for relief. So if this inflationary index continues to drop, that's going to bring the drop of mortgage rates with it, which will pump that air that we need in the sales to take off maybe, hopefully, as early as the spring. I was on a panel a few weeks ago, and it was to a group of about 400 investors. And, um, you know, there was a, a bank economist and uh, a developer and uh, a senior bank lender. And it was really interesting because in terms of defaults, very few. In terms of missed deposits, I mean, at any one given time, we would have twenty to 25,000 units that are sold but not closed. So trust me, if there's NFSFs on deposits, it gets to my desk pretty fast. That's right. And it's been no different than, you know, I mean, with that number, people die, people get divorced, people go bankrupt. I mean, but, but I mean, most of the time there was a few little restructurings, but no real problems. Well, we, we saw that, like, we're kind of the, the front line of that. So before somebody defaults, they try other things. Uh, in our group being the the biggest transacting investment focused group in the country. We don't have that many people that compete in that arena. Um, we represent a lot of pre-con investors. We had triple the amount of people. Typically it's 10% of our sales. We'll try to assign. Mm -hmm. We were at 35% in the fall. If I look right now, we're probably sitting at 30% of the people who bought units with us mm -hmm. are looking to exit. And that is because they simply are going to have issues closing and or carrying through this painful high interest period. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a real problem. That's not a, it's not a joke. If a thousand or $1,500 negative cash flow, although it sucks and it's terrible and it's hard to endure, um, at the end of the rainbow is a pot of gold, meaning their equity raise since they bought, etc., is typically there. Right. The only thing I'm noticing that has a negative connotation to it is the fact that the delta of negative cash flow, it's no longer 500. To be able to bear it, it's 1,500, 1,200. And that is not a typical amount for the typical retail investor to be able to carry. It's now, the, I'm, I think you're going to see the same amount. At the end of the day, most people are still going to take it. Most people are going to fight it through. But you're still going to see a higher rate of NSFs on your desk, I think, just through this next six months also, until we start seeing that positivity, in my opinion. Well, also, I think that, you know, I had a pension fund that approached us about a year ago, and they said, look, we have a lot of money available to pick up some assignments for people that are desperate, right? So we monitored that market because we have a whole separate division that functions that does rentals and assignments in the buildings that are sold out. 
And the rentals went crazy. They're all up 15, 20, 25 percent. 30, 35 percent in some cases. Because there's a significant inverse relationship between rents and interest rates. I mean, as interest rates go up and it, it cramps certain people's ability to purchase or inclination to purchase, then those rents increase. Well, it's the old saying, rates are up, rents are up. Yeah. It's, it's just that simple. So, so, you know, six months, nine months from now, if we're right in terms of when rates do come back down, you know, that typical $500 a month spread might be might be back as opposed to 1500 That's because right. rates will be lower, but rents aren't going to fall, I don't think. No. No, they, they can't, uh, especially given... So there, there's another issue that's happening here. Everybody knows the relationship between supply and demand and how horrifically skewed uh, it is in this country, specifically in Ontario, specifically to the GTA. Right. There is nowhere near the amount of supply to meet the demand. Rents are not going to come back down for a few reasons. As a matter of fact, they're going to continue to go up. Even when buyers can return to buying, and there's not multiple offers on rental because that's also an artificially big spike because of people can't buy. They can't afford it. They cannot qualify for the mortgage, so they have to rent. Even when, even when the ability to afford a mortgage comes back, the supply constraint now because so many projects canceled and or delayed and or decided not to proceed at all is going to create even further Supply issues. That lag effect could last 12 to 36 months. So if we were five years behind, six years behind on even having a chance to catch up on inventory, it's now 10. Well, the numbers are, I mean, I always knew in my head the numbers for the GTA in terms of supply and starts. And it's, it's been pretty consistent for the last 20 years uh, at around 40 to 45,000 new homes per year. What changed was in 2005, before Greenbelt, about two-thirds of that forty to 45,000 a year was single-family towns, low-rise frame, ground-oriented, and about one-third was multifamily condos. By 2015, it had completely flipped, and it was 65 70% uh, multifamily, and the rest was uh, single-family in towns, which, which increased the price and value of the single-family significantly and pushed people more into the, into the condos. But I didn't know that for Ontario. So when, when the province came out with its new plan uh, at the beginning of uh, last year, they said we need a million and a half new homes over the next 10 years, 150,000 a year. First thing I did was I looked, I checked, you know, what's been the average annual supply in Ontario for the last 10 years? And it's about 70,000 per year. So basically that supply has to double, a little bit more than double to, to keep up with, to keep the market balanced, you know? And that's not going to be that easy because, and the province making, I think, fantastic efforts at streamlining process and, and uh, you know, in making the uh, incentives for municipalities to process things quicker. Um, but it's, it's still a long, a long process. Um, it, it is indeed. And I completely agree. I want to I shift your attention quickly because there's a couple of things I want you to touch on uh, because I respect your insight so much. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, I've been working with Hunter my entire career. Uh, my late partner worked for Hunter when he was a 20-year-old kid. Um, so there's a very deep-seated root uh, inside this room right now. Um, and Hunter has served as one of my mentors in my business. I've built business verticals on the advice of this man. So I want you to share some of that insight 
um, in the way of a national approach? Because you've had brokerages and businesses all over the country, all over the globe, really. But in Canada right now, there are campaigns focused on on getting urban buyers such as Toronto or Vancouver to move to the to, to, to Alberta, for example. Alberta has a full-blown campaign targeting Quebec and Ontario, talking about affordability, lifestyle, etc. What is your take? London, Ontario has a campaign against Toronto called hashtag don't tell Toronto that they're saying is you can come here, live better, quality of life, cheaper, things can be better than living in the major urban area. I know Toronto will never change from being a magnet because of the lifestyle. What do you make, though, of Alberta real estate in general? What's your take on it? Uh, Who is it right for? How can our brothers and sisters in Alberta attract buyers or build their businesses in Alberta? Listen, the way we've always looked at at Alberta is that, you know, real estate in Alberta is like a proxy on the price of oil. You know, when when oil is 70, 80, 90, $100 a barrel, Alberta real estate is booming, notwithstanding other interest rates and other factors. You know, if oil is oversupplied and oil is overpriced, it's it's so dominant in that economy that it it really affects the supply and demand. It is a very cyclical market, and I know it from firsthand experience too. That's the first point. But I think one of the things that that uh, COVID did was it, it showed people that, um, you know, location maybe wasn't quite as important for, for business or things because, you know, you had all these, uh, you know, facilities uh, online in terms of uh, digital communication as opposed to in-person communication. So I think that if somebody had the chance to move outside the GTA to Kitchener, Waterloo, Barrie, Oshawa, you know, Niagara, Hamilton, um, it suited certain people. But, but there was also a, a, a retrenching in that too, because a lot of people who went suburban or rural realized that uh, maybe it's not as much fun when things open up again, right? So there was a bit of a retrenching back. Um, I remember we did an analysis once of, uh, it was very early in COVID and there was over 150 small apartments, bachelors and one bedrooms that were uh, for sale in the downtown 10 block, 12 block area. And I was talking with a couple of senior people, and they said, well, how long do you think it's going to take <coughs> for that supply to go? Because if we, if we analyze, you know, who's, the absorption. Rent, who's, who's renting and who's buying, you know, it looked like that supply was going to sit there for a long time. But surprisingly, within 90 days, 120 days, it was either gone. It was pretty much gone. Either it, was, either it rented or it sold, um, which just showed that as, as a vacuum was created and people moved out, there was certainly enough demand for it to fill up again, right? So I, I think that, um, listen, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think it's basically an individual decision in terms of where somebody wants to live. Um, that's one of the nice things about living in a great free country. You can, you know, you have lots of choices. Well, well I, I have some holdings in Alberta, uh, specifically the, the very first investment property I ever purchased, uh, I still own. Uh, it's in Red Deer, Alberta, where my family had restaurants. I had sold one of the restaurants. I picked up this uh, two-story townhouse kind of carriage home condo um it's never i've never had a month that it's been empty one of the strongest and consistent rental markets in the country is central alberta calgary specifically is very very strong the value has never gone up it's gone up a little bit it's come down a lot it goes up a little bit comes down a little bit but never ever 
have I seen that market appreciate anywhere near what some people call 3% or 4%, let alone urban markets going up 10, 15, and 20%. Right. But these markets, they, they're kind of these cash flow, consistent, stable markets. Right. So would it be safe to say that maybe our practitioners, our real estate colleagues in Alberta need to focus on finding those investors looking for stable returns not appreciation like our investors here look for appreciation it's more a little bit more speculative down here because they know of the shortage of supply they know they're putting the bet on that it has to go up because it's just too constrained out there if somebody's looking for income i think maybe that's the market that they should be focused on do you agree yeah it depends i mean it depends on on whether it's cash flow or appreciate but if you, if you look at the gta over the last 40 45 years you know, there's been four, five, six years where it's run and it's run up and it's appreciated at pretty significant four, five, six, eight, ten percent a year compounded, which is significant. And then you might have a year or two where it goes flat or drops a little bit, but it always comes back stronger for longer, right? So, you know, the first project that we ever sold was 33 Harbor Square on the waterfront in Toronto when there was nothing else there except for <laughs> warehouses. And it, was, it wasn't 100 years ago. It was, it was you know, 1970, 76 to 79. And it was $60 a square foot. I mean, people, I tell that to people today, and they, they, they think, what planet was it there then? You know, I mean, so... And these are, like, th this is the most solid real like, estate in the city. Yeah, like the thought of it ever getting to 1,000... Or before, I mean, we, we were, it was 25 years before we even thought it might get to 1,000 at some point. And then it blasted through 1,000, it blasted through 2,000. I mean, now you've had a few sales in Toronto and more projects coming out at, in, in the Midtown area at, at over $3,000 a square foot. So I think that it's hard to, when you do an internal rate of return, which you calculate your cash on cash with your appreciation, it's, it's hard to beat a big metropolitan area like Toronto. So, so that being said... Well, this is what we call blue chip real estate. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's consistent. It will be yeah. there. But forever. listen, for for personal reasons, for other reasons, for geography, I mean, there's nothing wrong with buying in a market that's more stable. Um, the only the only caution I would say about that is based on a previous comment that oil, uh, sorry, that that Calgary real estate is a proxy on the price of oil. You know, if you think ahead five to ten years from now, I mean, oil may go up in price before it peaks. But if you look at the big trends, the 5, 10, 15-year trends with EV cars and things like that, I mean, what, what's going to be that long medium to long-term price of oil? So that might be um, a little more... Uh, For the long-term hold, guys. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So that might not... That last 20 years might not be the same as the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, give me another one minute, your thoughts on Vancouver. We've had a foreign buyer ban now for a minute. Toronto has not been affected by foreign buyer ban because we never had that problem. People thought we did. Right. But only because Toronto's so multicultural, people think it's foreign buyers. No, they're second-generation yeah, Canadians. I think the federal government was three or four or five years too late on that That's one. That's right. You know? but Vancouver, most foreign buyers we but, ever had. But Vancouver has been affected yeah, a bit. Yeah. What's your thoughts on Vancouver real estate still being the peak of the market, still yeah. being the highest in the country? I mean, we still operate in Vancouver. We operated there off and on since the uh, early 90s. And, and, you know, when I went out there, and for people in the East, it's a little hard to understand, but very simply, the difference about Vancouver is that it's significantly more land-constrained than Toronto for, for a couple of specific reasons. Number one is you, you're much closer to the U.S. border. 
Number two is your terrain. You know, you've got mountains. Water, ocean in the front, mountain in the back, like yeah. le- legitimately. And number three is their equivalent of the green belt, which they call the ALR, Agricultural Land Reserve, because it was always more land constrained, was implemented in the late 70s. Ours in Ontario was 2005, so we didn't get to that point until significantly many decades later. And the, and the last point um, is more of a uh, Native Canadian issue. So in the East, everyone signed treaties. You know, in the West, we were involved in the development of a couple of ski, re- ski resorts in, in Western Canada, one in Revelstoke and one in Squamish, uh, and, and one in Vailmont. So, you know, in, Vanc- in, in BC, the, the, the Native group, the significantly large Squamish nation, you know, the other two or three large nations, you know, um, have, uh, in their opinion, an equal right to the land is the province. So when the province does something, they can't just do it without the consent of the... of the Because there's no the, treaty. Aboriginals group, yeah. So, so what that has done um, in the past is it's further exacerbated that land supply. Now they're cooperating much more and they're doing partnerships and they're, and they're getting things done. But um, for those reasons, you know, U.S. border, mountains, um, ALR... Uh, Native situation because for those three or four reasons, the land was significantly more constrained on the supply side, so prices went up faster. That's so interesting. Well, thank you for touching on the Vancouver market because because I know you have active holdings, businesses, and deals in Vancouver. I don't often get too many people that understand the Western market the way you do, so I appreciate the insight. <coughs> Last but not least. You just took on a mandate in Toronto um, that you've never done before. It's a, it's a purpose-built rental, towers, excuse me, 1,000 apartments. For decades, you have only sold apartments and condominiums. You took on a listing of 1,000 rentals. Not for nothing... My team of agents, who are some of the best in the country, when their business was compromised by 40 to 60% in the last two years, not because they can't do deals, because there are no deals. There is 50, 60% less deals. So naturally, they get hit the same way. They said, what do we do, Simeon? I said, you do what you need to do, esteemed team member. Because I'm going to do what I need to do. Meaning, if I have to dig further, scratch and claw, call 30 people a day instead of 10 people a day, work three hours more a day than I was working, we have to get through this time. Heydays are a-coming, but we don't know when. Until then, we have bills to pay. We have our own families and growth to worry about. And we're doing what we need to be doing. You expanded the view of your brokerage by taking on such a mandate. Tell me about the mandate and tell me how you are going to work this mandate. What do you expect to happen with this business? This was, this was a uh, central Toronto. It's uh, DuPont, Lansdowne, Davenport. It was a 40-acre site that was acquired by a group um, 30 years ago. And it's a, it was a master plan community, but it was really... 
uh, because of where it was and what it was. It wasn't really high end. It was a it was a um, a middle class working class neighborhood that was had great housing. So we sold apartments, condo towns, uh, lofts, um, condo apartments, many different buildings over the years. And uh, the main gentleman that owned it. Um, as he was maturing, he thought, well, you know, maybe as a legacy, I should do a rental project as opposed to uh, a condominium project where I just sold. So Keep something. Yeah. So basically, he has under construction, and it looks like it's going to be occupying in uh, Q1 of 2024. Uh, it's a 1,000-unit purpose-built rental project. So there's two towers, about 750 units, and about 250 townhouses. And so it's going to probably come on the market um, early January for lease. And I suspect because the rents are at the lower end of the spectrum, um, and they're still not cheap, but because costs are there, and I don't think rents are going to come down as we as we no. stated. But um, I, I think the absorption on that is going to be quite significant and, and quite quick because um, other things being equal for a tenant, if I have a choice as a tenant to rent from an owner of a condominium, or a purpose-built rental, and probably better in a purpose-built rental, sure. simply because the owner is not going to call me one day and say, gee, I want to move in, or I want one of my kids to move in. And you or just move. like, you have real property managers, an entire team versus um, a single. Yeah. So, so I think that's going to do exceptionally well. And then there's other buildings coming up, um, some of them very high-end, and some of them uh, mid-market. Listen, rentals, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, pre-construction sales are fantastic, obviously, uh, but there's a very long um, receivable cycle. I sell a condo today, I'm getting paid over the next four years. Some here, some there, the, the, the majority on closing. I do a rental today, I get paid tomorrow. Yeah. For times like this, partnerships, collaborations, is how you can get through not only scrape by but thrive in a market that's downturning to put your energy and focus on for example a big campaign for your building is something that i'm going to tell my team to do to yeah. be on the co-oping side of as much of that building as possible yeah your team is the listing agent it's up to us to gather the tenants to get them in there and get paid it's a well, great opportunity by nature i mean it it, the building has to be finished, right? It has to, people have to be ready to move in. But if you can do 30, 40 deals quite easily with some dedication and you know the building inside out, that's 50, 60, 70 grand in compensation. Rentals are not a small piece of business. They're significant the yeah. minute that you get into some volume. I absolutely love where we went for this. I just thought I would highlight this because pivoting and taking on interesting projects is something you've always done. Um, it actually inspires me to do the same. Uh, and I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for being on Broker's Playbook. Thanks, Simeon. I appreciate Looking you. Looking forward to next time. Until next time, yeah. thank you for joining us. Hunter has always delivered and will continue to do so. We'll see you soon.